0: RTI Time Machine, today's Time Traveler is John Van Trieste and the Destination Post-War Taiwan. Since 1914, when the first recording of Taiwanese music was made, Taiwan's recording artists have navigated decades of changing trends and politics. In this three-part series, we've been exploring the history of Taiwan's recorded music with expert Huang Yu-yuen, a researcher at the National Museum of Taiwan History. We've heard the story of recorded music's early decades here. We followed the arrival of foreign musical styles, met some of the early recording artists, and even heard a few of the early songs people still remember. So far, our look back at musical history has seen us in the early 20th century, a period when Taiwan was ruled as a Japanese colony. This week, we arrive in 1945, the year both World War II and Japanese rule ended. At war's end, the Republic of China took control of Taiwan, and Taiwan's musical history entered a new phase. At the end of Japanese rule, Taiwan still had no recording studios or any way of producing its own records. This meant that after the war, Taiwanese albums simply stopped being produced for some years. The new post-war government was eager to censor music, but because no records were being made, it had a hard time doing any censoring. Music was still being made, of course, and some musicians from the Japanese period were still active, but there were no records. All performances were live, and the government found it hard to keep these shows under control. Even into the 1950s, as local recordings emerged, the poor technical quality and the small scale of reach limited government attention. In any case, at this point, the need for government censorship was questionable. This, after all, was an era of Cold War paranoia, martial law, and frequent political imprisonment. The artists themselves could be relied on to self censor. This tune from the 1950s, played here in a later cover version, is one example of a self-censored work. The song is called Missing My Hometown, but it was originally a different song entirely, one linked to a play. The song had been a hit, but the original lyricist was taken by the government, allegedly for his left-leaning sympathies. The song's composer was now afraid that unwanted attention would fall on him next, And so the composer found a new lyricist, and put new words to the song. With the arrival of the 1960s, and the rise of vinyl, the government got more proactive. An index of banned songs emerged. The bans were often arbitrary, and it was not always clear why a certain song had been banned. There are examples of songs being banned for just being too sad. There were also songs banned for being too strange, for having lyrics with unclear meanings, or for having allegedly lewd undertones. One Japanese song, rewritten with lyrics in the local Hokkien language, got banned after someone suggested it had once been a pre-war Japanese military song. The bans were rarely effective. In fact, in an age when official media rarely reported on popular music, an announcement of a newly banned song raised curiosity and could lead to a surge in illicit record sales. Some Taiwanese songs of the 50s and 60s that are still well-remembered today include this selection, My Hometown at Dusk, again performed here in a later cover version. There was also a song called Mama Take Care. But a large group of really popular songs from this period were actually imports from Japan. (laughs) As we've already heard, in part because of wartime history, singing Japanese songs could be a bit touchy in post-war Taiwan. Singers could get around restrictions on bringing these songs in, though, by simply translating the Japanese lyrics into the local Hokkien language and performing them as local songs. This jaunty little march from the 1950s is one example of a Japanese song that got this kind of Taiwanese makeover. As before the war, Taiwanese music remained wide open to foreign influences. But Mr. Huang says a history of colonization and similar musical tastes meant that Japanese music was by far the most influential for some time.
1: <laughs>
0: there was some Western music, and even a little Korean influence at this point. But just a quick glance at where pirated foreign albums came from is enough to show how much more popular Japanese titles still were. Western music got big in the 1970s, but even as this was happening, there was a move on university campuses away from foreign imitations as young people looked inward and began to stress their own voices. There were still albums of traditional music, of course. In fact, the technology was now such that many small workshops were churning out records of traditional music. But while truly local, this wasn't quite what the students were looking for either. They wanted something more of their own, something belonging to their generation, something that often turned out sounding like what we might call folk music. The so-called campus songs of this era are well-remembered as a whole. But Mr. Huang says the term campus songs describes a movement, not a genre. Aside from the fact young people wrote them, there was often little that these songs had in common. The artists and songs fell into many different camps. Some went the artsy intellectual route, others took on a more rustic style. Some artists, in line with government initiatives, stressed aspects of traditional Chinese culture, while others looked to develop a more local Taiwanese voice. Just how successful this mishmash of students was in creating something original is up for debate. After all, Mr. Huang says, guitar-strumming Westerners had already done the folk thing not that long before. Still, young people ate up songs like this one, sometimes translated as moon zither. This song tells the story of a real-life traveling bard who once sang songs throughout Taiwan's far south. As Mr. Huang points out, the traditional instrument heard in this song is not the moon lute the song refers to, but that didn't seem to matter. There was something about the song's wandering protagonist, traveling the land, singing his lyrics, that struck young people at the time as admirable and authentic. The campus songs weren't just limited to campuses. In fact, they found a broad, popular audience, and they're still sung today the government's reactions to campus songs were varied. Since some songs aligned with the government's cultural policies, it was at the very least not opposed to them. But other songs, songs with themes of reflections on society or songs showing certain political leanings were banned.
1: In 1987,
0: decades of martial law came to an end and slowly the restrictions on recorded music began to crumble. Restrictions of the past, like a requirement to send new songs for pre-approval, were scrapped. So too was a 1970s system of licensed singers. For a time, no one without a license could perform music on stage. Getting a license required an audition, sure to require a solid rendition of patriotic government approved songs. The lifting of these rules allowed one of Taiwan's favorite pastimes, karaoke, to emerge from the underground, where it had been discreetly enjoyed from earlier in the 1980s. It was a big step forward, but not all the restrictions went away with martial law. Restrictive laws were still being scrapped in 1992 and it was almost the turn of the millennium before the last restrictive publishing law was done away with. Taiwan's music scene since then has been a place of free expression, and it's difficult for us now to remember just how recently that freedom came about. But for historical researchers like Mr. Huang, our current era of recorded music is just one more layer in a history that goes back more than a century. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. Yeah. Uh-huh.